I hope I don't have to edit too much. I've been editing it. It takes like 40 hours per episode. Oh, wow. It's ridiculous. Like, somebody needs to volunteer some time. Like, some, know, right. some media person out there needs to. We need some young people. We need mm-hmm. some young people. Some undergrads. Some anybody. <laughs> like, we need some emerging adults. <laughs> disconnected youth. We need some. <laughs> they know the tech better than we do. Yes, they do. So I want to introduce our first roundtable for the first episode, No Place Like Home. The roundtable setup is really supposed to give us a place to process the episode. Um, It's not terribly long, so we're not going to be able to delve into all aspects of the episode, but just to create a space where we can discuss things that came up for you while you were listening. We can further conversations that didn't get fully developed and to really just give us a space to process. My guests for the first roundtable are Bridget Davis and Darnell Leatherwood. Uh, Both Bridget and Darnell are in the PhD program at the University of Chicago with me. They both are former teachers, so they have classroom teaching experience. They both have worked with high schoolers, and they both come from the School of Social Service Administration. That's our formal training and theoretical framework. So maybe I can just start us off with where I was coming from with this uh, episode. You know, being a first-generation college student, there's a lot of things that you navigate um, that you aren't always aware of at the time. Um, You're not constantly reflecting on those challenges in real time because you've got to get things done on a daily basis. Um, It wasn't until years later when I was an adult, when I was working as a college counselor, when I was studying education, that I really became aware of... um, of how many challenges young people face, including myself, like looking back in time. Um, And I really just wanted to give space to that a little bit to give voice to students who have challenges above and beyond what we think students should be navigating in their education experience. That was number one. Number two was um, I was just really struck by the lack of safety net for people who are living in poverty or just out of poverty or living without a basic need being met, that um, while they're navigating the education system, there really is very little safety net. And if anything happens, if one unexpected uh, challenge comes their way, it can really undermine everything that they've worked for. So those were the, the two places that I was really coming from with this episode. So, so I will say um, it's fascinating because so I'm also a first generation college student uh, graduate and um, I'm from a low income, low and low income and working class rural community. Um, And when I think about um, this story, I wasn't thinking the say what you like what you just said prompted a whole new kind of train of thought. Clearly, I was reflective, but I I had not thought about my own first housing experience that wasn't at home and nor was like the campus dorms. Um, but my first summer of not going home was in my sophomore year of college, and it was my the department chair of my of my division, so the English department chair, who and who said to me, I have this old house out in the country. You can stay there for the summer. 
and work and do this. And so it was the first, I'd never paid rent anywhere by myself. I'd never um, secured housing for a summer you know, away from college and home. Um, and I think about how that changed. I never went home again. But now that you're asking that question, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, had, had you know, Dr. Nancy St. Clair not said to me, you and some friends can stay out in this house for free this summer and you can work and, and feel yourself be away from home um, and read and, and do all these things. Like, I, I don't know what that would have meant for me. Um, so I think your question's a really good one uh, about kind of what what we take for granted and also the kind of what we rely on in terms of what I would say are, are happy accidents for kids that who do struggle. Um, how many of us who have were first generation students um, or from low income communities, the, many of us who have gotten through with degrees can look back and point to a whole series of these random and happy accidents. And without them, we may not be where we are. Um, so I'd, I'd say that to start. I think the other thing I would say is your point about the lack of safety net is really interesting because I kept thinking the whole time, wow, like college is the only safety net for emerging adults. Like take, get the Pell Grant is what's available. Um, and so, and Kendra's housing was stable while she was in college. And how, how ironic that actually pushing yourself to the extremes of what you're capable of at that point in your life on your own actually provides more support than what you would get if you stayed home and tried to take care of your family. Um, so I think, yes, like the the contradictions of the way the safety net doesn't work together or doesn't work at all in this country, I think is one thing. But I did keep thinking like, wow, the, the Pell Grant may be one of the most important means-tested poverty programs we have. Um, and even though it right now, I think only only... Um, provides about a third, I think, of most people's college tuition and and pay and costs. Um, so that just, yeah, I'm thinking a lot more let's about that. Question, well, more let's about ask that. question: How many of us here would have like done an undergraduate degree without a Pell? Without a Pell? No, I could have, but my dad got tuition exchanged because he was a custodian at a college, and at that time, they were still providing. Most colleges were still allowing food staff and custodians um, to get to benefit from their tuition exchange, and not just professors. Now, if you went to most colleges and universities nationwide right now, most of them would not be um, still honoring that for staff. They'd be doing it for faculty and they'd be doing it maybe for like administrative, like high level administrative roles. Um, but right now, you know, most custodian and, and food service workers are contracted out. And so they don't benefit from those. So I would not have gone without that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> similar for me, um, I'm a first generation college student graduate. Uh, from a low-income urban setting. And um, like she said, right, this sparked a whole lot of different questions for me. I think that that really I hadn't thought about for a long time. I, I think that I kind of took for granted where I am and how I got here. Um, but I will say this. I think one of the things that was so very important about my own living situation was that when I was very young, and I can speak anecdotally about these experiences, especially in the context of the conversation and, and, and what I've heard. Um, when I was very young, my mother, we, we actually grew up in what we would call the projects. We grew up in the projects for a little while until I was about 10 years old. And then my mother bought our house on auction. She bought our house on public auction for $500 down because you had to pay 10%. <laughs> so it was a $5,000 house and we didn't have, you know, a whole lot of things. You know, we didn't have a roof and um, we didn't have working toilets and stuff like that. But mom worked very hard to, to get us stable housing. 
And by doing that, not only did she provide space for us to grow and develop as young people, as adolescents, um, but it became a refuge for us in that space, which was really, when we think about it, East St. Louis, um, I love my city and I think it's a fantastic place. Don't get me wrong, but we have to talk about, I mean, as Charles Payne would tell us, there's always two sides to to the coin. Right. East St. Louis is it was for many years statistically the most dangerous city in the United States. So it was a refuge from a lot of the toxic stuff that was happening in and around my community and going to college was excuse me, in and around my, my own home. So going to college was interesting because college became a second home for me. I stayed in my dorm <laughs> for the majority of the time I was there. I stayed in the dorms for four years, actually. And um, and when I came home, I always had a home to come home to. But I remember being a resident advisor and some of my students didn't have a place to go back home to. And it created quite um, a, a large amount of stress on those students. I didn't experience that because my mother, who only made $250 every two weeks, I'm not telling on you, mom. <laughs> but my mother invested and she prioritized creating a stable living situation for us. And because of that, not only did I benefit from that during my adolescence, but I benefited through, um, uh, via, which I, I benefited from that also during, you know, um, my young adult years where I was able to go back home and find a space um, that I can call my own and one that was secure um, and, and, and and not fraught with a lot of, um, um, I guess, yeah, uncertainty, the other word I was looking for. So, yeah, so I, I guess um, I, I think when you say college is, is a safety net, I, I think you're absolutely right, um, especially when you, you provided the opportunity to go into to express and to learn yourself in a secure and stable situation you know my own experience has been one that's been i've been very fortunate to have a stable situation and because of that stable situation to kind of take advantage of resources and opportunities that i think a lot of my peers a lot of my peers we had a thousand students coming to my freshman class in high school we graduated 300 so a lot of my peers needed that opportunity to um to benefit i guess from some of the things that i've benefited from because of the hard work and the stable situation that my mother put us in the policy solution is obviously very different when you're dealing with high schoolers versus college students, right? Mm-hmm. The policy solution is much trickier when we were dealing with minors, right? So what could have been done for someone in Kendra's situation as a minor um, is an entirely different, as from an educator's standpoint, it's an entirely different track, like policy track, um, because you're looking at involving potentially external agencies that work with children to secure services. Um, but when we're looking at a policy solution for adults on college campuses, you're talking about being an RA and the reality that not everyone has a place to go to for summer, for winter break or between quarters or between semesters. To me, that seems like a ridiculously simple policy solution. Why is somebody not being employed during on campus during those periods? And I don't mean go make it happen yourself you know, freshmen. I mean, having simple entry questionnaires as an incoming student, do you need housing support services between, you know, between terms? If if you're saying yes, then there should be some type of work employment placement that covers your housing. That does not seem that difficult to me. I don't know if you, if either of you have thoughts about what the roadblock is? Is it really that people just are unaware of the extent of the issue? Or um, is it something where we've trained ourselves to believe that it's just so much harder to solve than it really is? Well, I, I can say from my own undergraduate experience, you know, we, we actually did some of that because, because uh, well, when I was a fifth year, I became a graduate 
Hall's resident advisor. And we had a lot of international students. Um, so those students would get housing, you know, during those breaks. Um, and we were very intentional about that over the summer, over the, um, the winter break. Um, and RAs could stay on and get paid a little bit more to, you know, help us. And then facilities would stay open. Like you can go eat, right? <laughs> While you were there, it wouldn't just, everything would shut down. Things, it would just be so many fewer people. That's it. Um, so at my undergraduate institution, we did have that in place. And I think it was a, a wonderful resource. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, um, comment on how those services are often provided at most colleges or universities where there is a, an international student population. And even if they're small colleges, um, because they, it's been planned for and because those students are self-identified and identifiable. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about my time. So I'm on the student support services uh, advisory board here at the University of Chicago, and we work on providing meals over breaks for students who are facing food insecurity. And I think one of the biggest challenges we face is we know the problem is there, but getting students to identify themselves as not having housing over breaks or ne not or needing access to food over breaks is incredibly hard. And I think when we think about what um, kind of the difference in status most first generation or low income students are facing when they go to a college campus, I think it's very difficult. Number one, I think most colleges don't ask the question upon entry. So they don't know who's first gen and they don't know who's they know who gets the Pell, but that exists in a siloed experience where you're in uh, financial aid. And so student support services doesn't have access to that information for lots of reasons that we say are about about privacy. But I do think it it really, I think, causes a problem where we're not able to target services really um in a really sophisticated way. And we rely on self-reports and I think relying on students to, to show up someplace and say, here I am, this is what I need. I just don't know that, that especially 18 to 25 year olds are, are gonna be likely um, to do that in an environment that they already may feel kind of stigmatized or like they don't belong. Yeah, I think that, that that's a really important point because I think about my own experience and if I had known there was a place on campus that gave out research, I still wouldn't have walked in. But, but I think maybe approaching it, even if it's an optional survey that everybody receives a link to, everybody that's the first step, you, you know, because it's not personal. It's not in front of anybody. You can totally identify, self-identify that way. And it's very low stakes. Then if I were to get an email that said like, hey, mm -hmm. you know, here's this. And I, it would feel much more, I don't know, it would, it would, it would feel less, I would feel less vulnerable, basically. I would feel less like I was outing myself as somebody on campus who maybe doesn't deserve to be there, even though it seems like a completely right. different subject in, in a way I mean it's really not because you know when you don't fit in you feel like you don't fit in it doesn't really matter you know what's underlying that or whether it's rational yeah absolutely I think you know even with my students you would see that fitting in piece right because people are still forming identity at that time it's a, it's a very um, important time I guess for figuring out who you are and and how you want to present yourself and when you get to a space like that it, it, I mean even myself as a first generation college student you, you learn the space and you learn what's appropriate to do in the space and what's not appropriate to do. And sometimes, you know, letting your letting your truth be known, right, is, is made to you feel uh, counterproductive in forming the kind of identity that's going to allow you to be a productive member of this space. You know, um, I, I remember, you know, not only as a student, but as a resident advisor in particular, you know, certain students putting on, you know, putting on fronts <laughs> to be presented or to be perceived a certain kind of way by their peers. And I would I would imagine that some of them wouldn't even express that they they're having some of these um, insecurities or uh, that they have some of these insecurities or that they don't have, you know, stable housing or, you know, um, 
food security um, because they don't want to be seen as the, the, the only student in the school who it doesn't have the resources, especially institutions where people are coming in very in, with very privileged status. Right. Um, so to out yourself in that way, I think it's, you know, I, I think some of our students just from a, I want to be perceived this kind of way. You know, I, I think some of our students are adverse to actually presenting that kind of information. And like you said, you know, if you send it to me in a, in a really, you know, you send it to everybody, you know, we can do this in, in a way where it doesn't feel like it's marginalizing anybody or putting anybody out there. I also, um, I do think this is where, Kelly, you raised the point in the, in the beginning saying like, what what does this mean for policy when we think about a high schooler, we think about housing for a family um, previous to college. And, and you're like, well, you know, maybe that's a whole other issue. Let's think about this. But I do think there's an interesting way in which this question of stigma and the question of does the college have a role in providing stable housing for someone to me, those do ask greater questions about our, our social safety net. And if, in this country, if you do not have a right to housing, um, you know, I it you can still be an institution and then wonder, is it our role to then provide it? If it's not the if it's not the role of our communities or our cities or our states or our, our nation to provide housing um, and even, you know, especially to families with minors, I think it begs the question of like, well, do we have to provide housing for an 18 year old? And I think that's an interesting and I think also provides a stigma, right? This question of deservingness and deservingness. I, I think it, um, you know, if we expected as if as young people, we were taught that housing is a human right. I think we would know to also expect and, and be able to act. Super snaps, Bridget. That's that's yes. very, very well said. Um, yeah, it's like we're already setting the bar so high that, that it's, I mean, if you were raised navigating a system that didn't prioritize your housing, right? What on earth would make you think that somebody else was going to do that later on when you're no longer even child? You know, that's, yeah, and from an institutional point of view, that conversation wouldn't even come up, right? Because it's not a social priority. And I think to connect to Kendra's story, the thing that was so interesting is that Kendra's story so is so indicative of, I think, what we see broadly, where um, for it, in the McKinney-Vinto Act, uh, young people are able to access resources through their school as if they're homeless, if they're doubled up. You know, in Kendra's story, oftentimes they were living with other family or friends. Um, but in terms of if you're on a housing wait list um, through the, con the HUD continuum of care, you're not considered homeless if you're doubled up. And then also you'd have to be homeless at this point in most major cities, you'd have to be homeless for over three years to be to be able to access housing. Um, and so that idea of what equals homelessness, um, I think also just is a is a really important point, I think, for us to to remember. I think the idea is that people have this conception that there's a needs-based bar that's set. You simply walk in with your little paperwork that show that you meet that need, and then magically this resource comes down to you in a reasonable amount of time, and you use that resource for the amount of time that you need, and then voila, like problem solved. And the logistics, the implementation, the logistics, it's just, that's just not how it is. First of all, to prove that you don't have something is... is really difficult. If you've ever had to help your students order tax transcripts to show that their parents are currently not working, it's it's a difficult thing. And it's not instantaneous. And then what we ask people to sacrifice to get to the resource is sometimes 
so much worse than where they currently are, even though it's a potentially long-term solution. What you're asking people to give to get there is sometimes just completely reckless and dangerous. Let's be honest. Especially with children. Especially with children. Right? Precarious housing, ultimately, which most families experience because they're go like, because you will do anything to house your children. Um, so you won't remain. You will never usually meet the bar for chronic homelessness, which means you will never meet the bar to, to get, you know, state-supported housing. Um yeah, it's really sad. And then I think because of those things, what a difficult position it puts the adults around you that want to help a family in that place because you know the options are not good. You know you don't have very many options to give. And you know that if you know certain information, you're going to have to relay that. And it's just, it's as an educator, it's sometimes a very difficult space to be in. Um and I don't think people don't notice or acknowledge that, but it's the stance that people are doing in classrooms or when you're working with students that have really high needs. And it's not just being without housing. I mean, there's a whole list of difficult circumstances that children navigate that um, our system isn't necessarily set up to allow the adults to help in a way that will genuinely improve outcomes. Like We might be able to do something, but whether that something is positive or not is not always is not always known upfront. I mean, I think the point you just raised is is becoming more and more important as the number and percentage of children living in poverty in this country raises. I think the the young I think the younger cohort of of students like in maybe grade grades K through five, I think it's like twenty seven percent of children are, are growing up in poverty. Which if you think about and that's not equally <laughs> equally dispersed amongst every teacher in the country. So when you're thinking about, um, you know, teachers really, whether you have 10 students in poverty in your classroom or one or 30 makes a difference. But also, like you said, I think every, probably every teacher in the country is is more frequently faced with this than they ever have been. And that, I think, leads us to questions about, like, how do you remain, how do you, keep faith in public education how do you how do you have a sense of personal efficacy even if you get really great test scores etc and you know you're doing a good job for your students if you're watching a quarter of your students um, struggle with food insecurity housing insecurity like that that's very difficult at the end of the day to go home and be like i'm doing a really great job yeah because the core basic you know our maslow's hierarchy of needs we can't solve those in the classroom you know in that space we can't do anything for those basic needs that continuously go unmet and it's a really demoralizing like space to be in maybe that's why all three of us went on to get our phds huh <laughs> decided to do something beyond the single classroom at some point you realize you're like i have to I have to do something about this and I can't solve it in here in, you know, at least not on a large scale. Yeah. Or not without getting a lot of pushback from administration. <laughs> well, and schools, yeah. And schools already do a, a lot. Mm. I mean, what we're asking schools yeah. to do is, is a lot. Yeah. And for them to do it well, yeah. I think is a whole other question. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your week and tune in for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>